Thanks for joining us once again on Core Ideas, the podcast where we delve into all things related to lake sediments. My name is Adam Jesiorski, and as always, I'm joined by my, by my good friend, Josh Steenbond. Hello there, Adam. How is it going? It's going pretty good. It's been a while. It has been this. a while. We've talked a couple times, but uh, it's been like a month since we posted the last episode. So it'd be like five weeks between episodes. Do you think anyone will notice? Think anyone Maybe. noticed that we're missing? It is the summer holidays. Yeah. They just assume uh, we're in the field yeah. or wherever. Well, that or as things open up, went and visited parents again or family for the first time in a long time. I've just as, been on uh, a patio this entire time. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, but in Pretty fact, much. we were just taking a little bit of a break, a little reset. So I guess we were doing those things. Yep. Absolutely. No. And uh, happily... Well, we'll see how uh, the fall goes, but uh, things definitely seem to be opening up. And uh, I guess the end is in the air in terms of pandemicness. The end of the current pandemic, touch wood. Let's see what happens. Uh, cautiously optimistic, yeah. And if not, we keep rolling with it. Our remote podcasts, we will continue to provide this service that you can listen to wherever you are. But where were we? Speaking of the last episode, I, I remember it was about diatoms, I believe, right? Yeah. So we kind of like took an unofficial break in the middle of our, in the middle of our new arc. We were just like, you know what? We're going to shelve this for a while. Uh, we don't, we don't really arc, know what we're doing. I don't think that's how you do it. You're supposed to break at the end of uh, a segment. Yeah. But uh, we, we decided to focus for a while on the small things. Because um, we spent so much looking at like some big picture issues or the history of paleo, and so we decided to dedicate some individual episodes to actual paleo indicators. Um, we began with pollen, um, then we switched into diatoms, um, and in some ways, on a quest to decide what the greatest paleo indicator actually is. That's right. Even if we decided that last week or last time, <laughs> uh, but let us continue on this now. A feeble search for the greatest paleo indicator with some We're panderers. Uh, yes, that's right. We will just say a little bit bigger. One is the greatest. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Great paleo indicators we shall look at either way. Uh, let's continue with something a little bit bigger than the diatoms. We continue to increase in our size classes, not intentionally, but that is, seems to be how it's going. Let's talk about the cladocerans. All right. So Clonocerans are something uh, or a group that we've covered uh, a couple times over the course of the show um, and def like in passing here and there. And we definitely gave a little bit of time to them in like our very first episode on bioindicators a lifetime ago. Um, so now let's do just a little bit of a recap on what the Clodocera are. Just let me pull up Wikipedia here. Oh no, don't, don't do it. Unfortunately, I looked the other day. There's like nothing the, there, man. The Wikipedia page is nowhere near as detailed as the diatoms one. Well, that gives you something cruel, to cruel. do when, when you're done with all this podcast work, you can start flushing that out. And if anyone else out there wants to, uh, provide a service to the internet, they can do that. So what are we going to do? Where are we going to next? Well, um, I, 
plan B after Wikipedia and most of my research has been uh, to reach for deeper uh, or the developments in paleoecological research, paleoenvironmental research. Yeah, okay, exactly. Paleoenvironmental. Yeah. Um, and in this case, uh, volume four, Zoological Indicators, chapter two, which was written uh, 2001. 2000? Came out in One 2001, yeah, published, probably written a little earlier. but uh, By uh, Ade Corhola and Mila Rasio. And uh, I would venture that compared to the diatoms, most people are, they may not realize it, but are a bit more familiar with the Glodocera on a general sense in terms of having actually seen them with their eyes at some point in their lives. You mean most people like the general public, not your paleo community, just people you might find on the street. There's a, a, not a bad chance that they have seen a uh, cladoceran in passing somewhere. I think you're right. Absolutely. So anyone uh, from our general neck of the woods that I would have gone to a cottage in like this, in Lemiskoka, Trent Severn type areas of uh, South Central Ontario, if they've taken a scoop of lake water out and looked at it more closely, just even in a jar, you'll see all kinds of small invertebrates um, floating around in there. And some of them are likely to be members of the Cladoceran. Like you might, maybe, might not be able to make out very much in the way of details, but you can definitely make out the organisms with the naked eye. We're talking about things that range on the order of like half to a couple of millimeters big in size. Like yeah. extreme ones and hard waters might be up to a centimeter, but I've never seen any of those. Uh, you won't find any of those around here. Um, and uh, some of them are actually quite famous, which we'll get to in the end in terms of uh, their invasive qualities and media attention. Yeah. If you've ever, those people ever pulled out, you know, a little cup of pond water, especially not from the bigger lakes, but from some of the small ponds that may not have anything to eat. Those little, little gals primarily, as we'll talk about. Uh, yeah, it's, it's hard to miss them. The little things swimming around, you may not be able to see it, but are going to be copepods or they're going to be big cladocerans. Uh, yeah, absolutely. But from a taxonomic perspective, where do they fall, uh, in the hierarchy of life? Okay. So they're invertebrates, uh, of the, um, class Branchiopoda. So, in other words, they are a order, and you'll sometimes see them referred in to some place in some places as a superorder uh, of the crustaceans. Um, and they are commonly known as water fleas. Um, and from a paleo, uh, or not not from a paleo, from a limnological point of view, they are a very major component of the zooplankton or the um, uh, microscopic microscopic animal life within within lakes. And they're also um, very abundantly preserved and uh, easily found within the sediment record because uh, the shells, the head shields, the post-abdomens, and the post-abdominal claws of these tiny crustaceans are among some of the most frequent animal remains um, that you'll find when examining lake sediments. Yeah, and one of those paleolimnology indicators that's probably the, the most like uniquely limnological there's really not a lot of uh uh marine cladoceran species in direct comparison to the copepods which are kind of their non well-preserving 
comparison in terms of the trophic location and obviously that's that's pretty broad because they they as we'll talk about have a, a pretty wide range of positions within the trophic uh trophic ecosystem as well uh, but very much a limnological fixture and really important uh, primary consumers in a lot of cases but also some predatory species in lake ecosystems that leave all sorts of different stuff behind and that's from someone who's never really worked on uh, i've done a little bit of clodosserin work far 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 less than uh, adam uh, that's one of the really very different things about the clodosserins from a paleo perspective that we'll talk about yeah, and so um, in terms of paleo indicators, uh, as Josh alluded, alluded to there, uh, basically most of my graduate research and most of my postgraduate research uh, had a clodosserin um, bent to it all, um, beginning um, both in a general limnological sense, where in my master's I was doing um, net hauls, trying to capture certain, uh, certain subtypes of clodosserins um, to examine their calcium content. And then eventually switching to a paleo sense, looking at the same same guys or gals, um, and and the record of their community changes through time in the sediments. And the group is quite diverse, um, I guess, in terms of uh, scale. Nowhere near as diverse as the diatoms that we've talked about. Um, but in terms of their trophic status, they're considerably larger. Um, many of them are herbivores, including... Really, the ones that I've always been most interested in are uh, planktonic filter feeders. There are some predatory uh, species as well, um, and they're found pretty much everywhere within um, limnological systems, uh, whether you're talking about species in the open water, species that are associated with vegetation, species that like to live on rocks, in sand, in mud, pretty much all aspects of the lake, uh, you're going to encounter some specialist cladocera as well well designed to take advantage of that in those particular locations yeah exactly just uh a huge well potential then uh kind of thinking ahead to when we usually discuss these more from a paleo uh indicator perspective to reconstruct habitats across the ecosystem in the open water but at multiple trophic levels too which is not something that you would get with the diatoms they're all going to be well we have the habitat range obviously in the chemistry range they are all uh primary producers so here we have a wide range of different habit or different feeding strategies which is something you get with animals as an indicator that you just don't with uh, plant-like algal organisms yeah and and i guess one thing we'll come back to but to stress earlier they have very much an intermediate trophic position uh, position again in their um the dominant algal grazers in a lot of aquatic systems, or um, one of the dominant algal grazers. Um, but at the same time, um, as we climb up the food chain, they're also a principal prey item of small fish and invertebrate predators. And um, they are dominant within, or not dominant, they're very commonly found, or a large component of uh, the aquatic food webs. And one of the reasons for this is they um, have a very, um, aspects of their life cycle are very well adapted to uh, rapid reproduction because most of the time they are um, reproducing through parthenogenesis, which is um, a case where an adult female um, will produce unfertilized eggs that all develop into basically identical clones of the mother. And 
they will have broods of, it depends on how favorable conditions are, but you know, it's not unusual to see double digit numbers in terms of brood sacs and they're able to produce a brood every couple of days to a week when conditions are really, really good. And so that means these community communities can respond very rapidly to changes in the environment, basically just explode, um, uh, in numbers when conditions are good. And we'll put a link in the show notes, but one, one figure that I used really like to show when talking about clodosterins and, you know, introduction to invertebrate paleo type classes is a figure from, from Wetzel, one of the classic limnological texts and using some back of the envelope calculations for grazing rates for Daphne density plus the volume of the lake. Uh, there's an example lake in there where there's a figure that shows at the peak in summer, a peak Daphne density, uh, 300% of the lake volume was being filtered every day by the Clodosterum community alone. That's crazy. That's not a small lake. Uh, and it shows t- both of those things are important. There's just so many of them and they're such efficient grazers on the algae in the water that they can clean the lake uh, three times a day. Unbelievable. Yeah. And so because of that, um, you know, that is just, again, underlining what we've said a couple times uh, already, that they're very important components of these lake, uh, lake ecosystems. Yeah. And, and you, you, you talked about that most of the year they are producing, or under most conditions, most of the year, I guess that makes sense, uh, parthenogenic uh, clones uh, of them of themselves. Uh, but that's not the case. It's not that there aren't males of these individual species. They do exist, but they fill a very specific role in the life cycle um, that has to do with a, a loss of those really favorable conditions. Yeah. And, and this is where I'm kind of getting out of my lane a little bit, because I don't know very much about in terms of the physiolog- physiological cues that lead to the creation of males. But basically my understanding is you have this otherwise matriarchal society of lots of identical cl- female clones, but then something happens as conditions deteriorate, whether it's related to temperature or light or food availability. So just a general stress signal of some kind um, leads to some males being produced somehow. And this is where I'm going to plead ignorance on exactly how it happens. And basically they only live long enough to fertilize the eggs. Um, so then you have a, this brief burst of sexual reproduction that will happen in the fall. And the results of um, that sexual reproduction is a different kind of egg, a diapausing or resting egg um, that can overwinter in the sediments. Yeah. And if you've ever looked through uh, a number of different kind of indicator slides, it's possible you've seen those as a a paleolimnologist, these resting, uh, resting eggs that are produced. And the idea is that when conditions become favorable the next year or uh, after some sort of stressor, those will hatch and continue on this cycle as before. And, but also they can remain in the uh, sediments in the egg bank, so to speak, for longer than that. And, and we'll talk about that at the end, that that's a, an exciting Subdiscipline, I guess, of paleolimnology. Yeah, and just to roll back, like just um, one statement you said there. 
I think many people, again, going back to like the general public um, kind of familiarity or lack of familiarity with the colorosterones. If you've ever been up on a lake, and again, I'm, all my examples are like uh, South Central Ontario kind of areas, but in the fall, you'll see a lot of foam being whipped up on the beaches or on the lake shores. If you take a close look, even just with a naked eye, um, at that foam, next time you walk by one, you might see lots of small brownie black specks in it. And if you were to look at those specks under a microscope, then you would notice they're actually uh, fipia or the uh, diapausing eggs because they're also big enough to be seen with the naked eye. Although you're not going to be able to make out many of the details, but uh, that basically a lot of them are produced. Oh, I didn't know that. There you go. Learn something new. I mean, I know what the foamy stuff is. We get that all the time. But no, I'm going to be looking for foam uh, at the edge of the lake in the fall. Yeah. And I'm sure there's lots of other crap that can be oh, yeah, caught yeah. up in the foam. Sure. But some some of it will be Ephipia for sure. Cool. Um, there you go. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and there is lots of interest, again, because of the huge impact they have on lake ecosystems. Uh, of interest in the colossal from a limnological perspective in the most broad sense. Um, but when you dig into the colossal from a paleolimnological sense, it definitely seems that uh, all roads lead back to David Fry. Did we talk about him in the history of paleolimnology series much? I don't know that we did, huh? I don't think we, I think we may have name checked him. Yeah. Um, and again, I guess in hindsight, looking back on, on, on that arc, we had a huge diatom focus. And I think Clodosser would have been thrown out as like, you know, when other indicators kind of blossomed uh, yeah. in terms of interest or interest spread beyond uh, the early work. And we may have um, referred to him, but I guess uh, he probably, he warranted more, more, um, focus than we gave him i'll say definitely can say that much um, yeah because he's I mean, one of the it, you know in our defense uh, this is as good a time as any for one uh but as you trace the sort of arc of the development of paleoluminology it is pretty closely tied to the diatom so i, I think uh, we can get away with it but you can't talk about codocerans without oh, yeah. talking about uh, Frey, Fry? You're well, not sure how to pronounce it even. I, I think I think it's Fry. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'll be willing to take any uh, angry emails. It's one of yeah. those names that I've seen written a billion oh, times. Yeah. I've papers. talked about him with, yeah. with people on yeah. multiple occasions and heard it both ways, but I'm pretty sure in conversations with John, he refer, referred to him as David Fry. It's probably it's the only person we know who's met him. That makes sense. Yeah. We should listen. But I don't, uh, you know, I'll But then again, he pronounces my name wrong all the time. And I've told him he, straight to his face. <laughs> he's told me I pronounce my name wrong. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. So we'll just, we'll just continue on here. But, uh, Professor Fry uh, was a, a researcher and an early paleolimnologist in terms of kind of uh, synthesizing material and, and really was was almost uh, solely interested in in all of this as a, a tool to better understand the taxonomy of his beloved clodocerans, uh, in particular the chidorids, and understand, oh, not just the taxonomy of them, though he was you know, if you if you are studying codocerans, 
reading papers uh, on their taxonomy will very likely have his name at the at the as probably the only author actually. Yeah. But also understanding um, the distribution of those species. Yeah, like his, he was very much a taxonomist. Um, and if you read those, go back into like the earlier papers that you'll encounter, um, it's very much focused on distinguishing between different um, uh, species of, Chidora, of chidorids. Um, and then also it branches in, his research interests really branch into the biogeography and questioning whether some of the species that were widely recognized as cosmopolitan were actually cosmopolitan in terms of things like Chidorospherichus. Like, is what was being called Chidorospherichus in Europe really the same as what was being called Chidorospherichus in North America? Right. And, um, you know, it's the long, the short answer to a long story is no, um, but that's kind of beyond the scope of what we're talking about here. But his interest in Cladocerans and isolating Cladocerin remains it was really his road into paleolimnology. It was kind of the reverse of many of the other um, um, paleolimnologists at the time, that they were interested in what paleolimnology could tell them about environmental change. Yeah. And he was much more interested in what paleolimnology could tell him about um, uh, what was living in the lake at any given time. So like a sediment core would provide him with all sorts of remains that he could then uh, distill down to their taxonomic, uh, characteristics. Whereas it's quite hard to go and take lots of net toes. It's, it's time consuming. You may not get all the different species. Uh, and we found in, was this in the deeper, uh, yeah, book this, that this, this quote good. came out of, you want to read it? Yeah. And so just to kind of characterize what we're getting at here, uh, as a quote in deeper, um, from 1960, but it's basically where he's saying a list of species, at least chidorids, occurring in a given body of water can be attained with the least expenditure of time and greatest assurance of completeness from an examination of the sediments. So his interest is very much limnological, but using the sediments to uh, um, as the means of generating the most complete samples of the, the chidorids. And um, I guess we're not mentioned this earlier, but many of these species are that he was most interested in would be the kinds most associated with vegetation or uh, various substrates. So that you're actually be some of the least likely that you might find through a, a net haul. And so in that way, um, uh, collecting a sediment core was a lot easier than going out and scrubbing rocks to get your, your samples from a given, given lake. Yep. Which worked for studying the species, but also works quite nicely and, and indicates, uh, I think quite well that they are a faithful uh, record of what is found in the lake, not just in the water column, but in many and perhaps all of the different habitats that they would be living as uh, alive individuals. So, with all that background on the Cladocerans, and um, you know, when we eventually get the show notes up. Um, You've got references, and we'll provide references so you can dig into that taxonomy and whatnot at your leisure. But bringing it all back to paleo, I thought uh, the next part of the show is going to focus on just, and as we've been doing in these uh, small picture arcs, is just how do you isolate them and what preserves and not just why are you interested, why are we interested in uh, these organisms, but what can you what can you get and how do you get it? So for the Cladocerans, at least, um, what preserves? Um, 
well, basically body parts. Uh, this is the first one I think we've talked to in the, about in the series in a while where we're dealing with subfossils. You will ve very rarely find a complete animal. Um, or you'll never find a complete animal because not the whole and very none of the whole animal actually preserves. You're dealing with bits and pieces, and they're the heavily chitinized bits and pieces. So things like their head shields, their carapace, um, their post abdomens, their post abdominal claws, and again these are crustaceans. Um, so basically they have, you know, their skeletons are on the outside of their body, um, and some of those skeletons preserve quite well in sediments. Yep. Uh, yeah, I mean, diatoms split into two and, and that's about it. You're like you have the two halves of the frustule, the two different valves, and they split, but this is a, another animal entirely, you know, and not every, as we'll talk about, not every species leaves the same remains behind the all primarily related to the degree of chitinization or chitin, how chitinized they are. Uh, chitin is a, a polysaccharide. It's, I think, the second most common polysaccharide on Earth after cellulose. It makes up, as Adam said, the exoskeletons of many invertebrates, uh, insects, crustaceans. So it's very, very common biomolecule. But if you've ever just looked at different insects, uh, you can see how different uh, in terms of the degree of chitinization they can be. A beetle with its really hard shell is entirely different than uh, some small flying insects and you get similar things in the codocerans the some taxa are going to have very uh, well relatively well chitinized parts and some much less so and the subfossil nature of the codocerin the study of codocerins is you're likely to find different body parts for different species so for example, Daphnia is a very, very common uh, species, and the only, not the only, but the most commonly found um, remain that you'll find from them is a post-abdominal claw, um, whereas some of the chidorids that we mentioned in the previous segment, um, one individual will leave behind a head shield, two halves of his carapace, a post-abdomen, which may or may not have the claw attached, and um, so then you have to do a bit of a correction factor a lot of the time to account for um, how many how many individuals may be represented by your sample is like the most common way of dealing with this rather than just a raw number to account for the fact that certain taxa are on a purely numerical basis have a better chance to be represented in the sediments than others. I think that was one of the things that uh, I was most surprised by when I first learned, cause Jenny worked on Clodocera for her grad work. Uh, so I, I, you know, have heard much of this many times. Um, but that at the end of a count, you know, or end of a, an interval, you, you don't just add them up and type the numbers into a spreadsheet. There's math to be done for this to figure out, uh, which is the most abundant of the remains of a given species indicating the likely number and, and figuring out that kind of component. Yeah, so there's there's a little bit more that goes into it than you diatomists out there might be familiar with. Yeah, and uh, in terms of isolating the remains from the sediments, um, that is where one of the um, if the counting is a little more complicated, the isolation is uh, much more simpler than the procedure you would use for diatoms. Um, 
you're not dealing with anything too, too nasty, and you're not actually digesting anything. Basically, you're going to try and break up the sediments or deflocculate your sediment samples in a weak, like 5%, 10% um, solution of uh, potassium hydroxide, and then sieve the samples, um, preserving the residue that catches on the sieve. Um, usually, so in, in the deeper volume, it said... Uh, the official kind of deeper method, I guess, would be 50 micrometer mesh size. I think ours is a bit smaller than that. But uh, um, in terms of just capturing the residue, uh, add it to a vial, add a little bit of a saffron dye so they stand out a little bit more in the slides, and then pipette individual aliquots onto a slide for identification. So the whole nitric sulfuric acid mix, yeah. hydrofluoric acid mix. Um, all the, yeah. those are steps are completely, um, completely not used gone, at all. Yeah. Because yeah. those would destroy the... the yeah, the yeah exactly. And, and you don't have to worry about getting... It's not like pollen where you have to get rid of the diatoms so you can see them. The diatoms just go right through the sieve. They're, you know, the very largest one might end up on there if you were in a lake loaded with Didymo. Um, but that's not not a real problem. You keep behind the big stuff and let the small stuff sort through. And you will get pollen on these slides and things like that. And they stain nicely with the same dyes. But yeah, that is quite different. Basically washing them in soap to clean up the remains and putting them on something and having a, having a look. Uh, and, and you go through a lot more slides was the other thing that I always found. Like uh, in a lot of cases, when you're making slides for an interval, you would be making multiple um, because the remains are less abundant, even though there's lots of them than things like diatoms or, or pollen, you might make 10 slides, uh, of a, a given interval and you would count all of those as opposed to, it's a really bad interval. If you have to count more than a single cover slip, so in most cases, a couple of transects for diatoms. But you're also working at a high, lower magnification. Yep. So that an individual cover slip goes a lot faster because you're, um, you know, the field of scanning. view is much larger, much like, yeah. And you're potentially scanning with your 20 times and dropping into your 40 times for IDing or something to that effect. So on the one hand, it sounds hard, you know, like, like a order of magnitude, more work, but it's not actually the case in practice. Very true. Um, and another key thing, um, in terms of. The isolation, which I found quite interesting, so I switched fairly late in the game to doing coronavid analyses and going from having to do lots of slides to, uh, or not lots, but multiple slides in order to uh, get a, va a viable clodosterin count, then running into situations where after doing the coronavid prep, which we'll talk about in another episode, um, basically having to sift through all the cladosterone crap that made its way through trying to find the chronomans I was interested in. Get out of the way, Kydora <laughs> shell. <laughs> Pretty much. And it's like when you look at like one individual chronomid tray and you go, geez, there's like, you know, just in, without even doing any count, I know there's like 10,000 cladosterone yep. remains in yep. here. And so it's kind of scale is everything, I guess. Oh, and I guess we, did, we never flushed out uh, what is uh, the kind of, goal for a count number where we talked about like four or five hundred diatoms three to five hundred diatoms what are we looking at for cladocera 
in ideal circumstances, not, not really crazy ones. Yeah. Um, I think, uh, in, so there's some variance, uh, depending on, um, on how you quantify in terms of number of remains, um, is what I ran into when I was first starting, but then I don't know what, 10, 12 years ago, uh, Josh Kurek, uh, led a study kind of, um, and it's largely in terms of theoretical, like within a given sample, at what point, how many, sam- how many do you need to adequately characterize the assemblage? Yep. And uh, the number you settled on was about 100. The diminishing returns kind of study. Like you're not finding anything new, even if you, you may add one more taxon. Cool. There and you I, go. And, yeah. And that kind of lines up just by and large with 300 body parts most of the time quite well, which was, uh, I don't know if it's recommended in um, the Koholon ratio chapter, but somewhere along the line, 300 seemed to be a bit of a magic number. And then when you're actually doing it for individuals, it kind of lined up quite nicely in the end. So Perfect. There you go. Yep. Uh, and then kind of moving on, I think we've covered the lab work there. Uh, let's start thinking about what it is you can do with all of this great data that you've collected from a paleo perspective and liminological perspective. So I compared to the pollen and diatoms we've already talked about in this arc. Um, I think one of the key things and key takeaways is that Clodosterin paleo analyses um, and the interpretations of the Clodosterin paleo record by and large um, is more qualitative than quantitative. Um, there are definitely transfer functions that have um, been used in terms of the clodosterins, but you were typically um, talking about a much smaller community. So you were talking about dozens of species rather than hundreds of species in a given um, sediment core. And so it becomes one of those things of, you, I guess you could, or people have developed transfer functions to infer temperature changes, um, lake depth changes and things like that. But the colostrum transfer functions would not be the ideal tool in any of those, um, in pretty much any case, because using like the diatoms or something like that, you're going to just have a much better model performance. Yeah, exactly. They just, it's not like you couldn't, for many of them, there may be some physiological connection, but the, the, benefits of using the diatoms or or chrysophytes or some other algal indicator in terms of just the number of species the more easily definable tolerances and the less connection with things like higher trophic levels which are going to be influencing as well which is not really you know we can, we'll talk about it in a minute but the grazing away of the diatoms is not really a control on their species on their uh, abundance in the vast vast majority of conditions is not the same for the clodocera yeah and uh and because of that it just has changes the kind of questions that are asked and so a lot of the paleo work that you'll encounter uh very much uh focuses on on changes within the planktonic taxa a lot of the time um and some of the most commonly encountered planktonic taxa that you'll find in temperate regions are uh, members of the Bosmanidae and the Daphnidae, um, Bosmanids and Daphnids, 
Um, and so a, like the classic example of this would be using that intermediate trophic position to provide information on uh, trophic interactions or trophic cascades. Um, and an example would be uh, Levitadel, um 1989, looking at Paul Lake in, oh my goodness, my Americans, is that Michigan or Minnesota? That's Michigan. That's Michigan. Yeah, Minnesota is that man. Um, and um, the kind of the study is doing a multi-proxy analysis, but in terms of the colostrum component of it, they're looking at a lake that was um, exposed to rotenone to eliminate the native fish population so that it could be stocked with lake trout, um, and that changed the dominant piscivore. And then all of a sudden, um, it led to Daphnia, which is the larger of those two colostrums, Bosmina versus Daphnia, all of a sudden becoming the dominant clodosphere because it released it from um, the pressure of zooplanktivores or the smaller fish and minnows because um, the lake trout ate them up, basically. So you had a trophic cascade effect that lasted for a little while until a um, particularly bad winter kill um, eliminated the lake trout from the lake, leading to a resurgence among the planktivores, which then in turn allowed the bosmina to rise because all of a sudden it was a... Um, a comp competitive advantage to be smaller, basically, uh, basically, so you're less likely to be eaten by visual predators until the lake was restocked um, with largemouth bass and then flipping the conditions again. And so then you have that kind of trophic cascade through time reflected in the colostrum record. And so those are the kind of questions and um, relationships that you're more likely to see um, the colostrum used for as opposed to a long-term reconstruction of a um, given variable. Yeah, they're really common in those kind of food web visualization diagrams to see. This one goes up, the top predators or the piscivores goes up, this one goes down, the planktivores, which means the large clodocerans are going to go up because they're, you know, they're much easier to see, they're easier to eat, they're more energetic in terms of the food quality for or planktivores. And then there might be some impact on the the uh, primary uh, producing community, the algae, not just diatoms in this case, the whole ecosystem algae in terms of the feeding, uh, grazing efficiency of those taxa. So that could be reflected in paleo indicators, either in the algae or in things like uh, the changes in pigments inferring production. So I'm sure the Levitt et al. paper has multiple trophic levels in it that talk about all of those different things, but from a, a Clodosser in perspective, the shift back and forth between these different planktivore groups based on the, the trophic pressure is a really classic example of that use. Absolutely. And uh, the Clodossians are also well studied with respect to acidification. Um, in a lot of cases, um, they would not be good pH indicators because... Um, they're not particularly well suited to low pH conditions. So instead yeah. of seeing a replacement of, uh, you know, circumneutral clodosterins with acidophilic uh, clodosterins, basically you, you see the elimination of clodosterins and a lot of acidification or heavy acidification. And then that has always been one of the interests from a limnological point of view in places like the Dorset A lakes, uh, where you've got. Um, you know, lake halls of the zooplankton going back to the late 70s and tracking changes through time and 
the long-term recovery of lakes from uh, acidification there versus uh, in the general vicinity of Sudbury, just colostrum being eliminated and gradually repair, um, returning over time, hopefully, although that's where I came in in my graduate studies looking at potential reasons why they might not be. Um, and one of those is uh, calcium decline. Because um, in addition to being heavily chitinized, they have large amounts of calcium in their carapaces. And so um, that may be limiting their recovery in a lot of uh, softwater lakes uh, that were impacted by acidification. There's also a variety of, um, or an angle of study looking at um, UV penetration in alpine systems, looking at differences in pigmentation between various clodosterone species um, in, in the paleo record and changes over time. And yep. then I, just in recent years, a huge proliferation in multiproxy analyses all over the place, looking at climate, re climate warming. And clodosterones are often you know, very common Common in, commonly included in multi-proxy analyses to compare, as Josh mentioned, with relation to the fish stocking exercise, but just seeing what they are doing um, because they're a different trophic level than things like the Kodossans and Christ fights and whatnot. I think the UV one is a cool example. Uh, anytime I've like, often when you take a sediment core, the water sitting on the top, uh, it has all sorts of things swimming around it and tend to be uh, a lot of clodosera and, and from my Arctic work, they tend to be quite big because many of the lakes are fishless and they tend to be quite pigmented partly because they're fishless because the darker pigmentation of the clodoserans make them even easier prey, especially when they're big ones for fish, but also as a result of the fact that it's in the Arctic. So in the summer, the sun is shining 24 hours. Well, it's not always sunny, but the sun it's bright 24 hours a day. Uh, and so they would require this pigmentation or they would benefit from this pigmentation as a basically sunscreen uh, against the UV uh, impacts in those really shallow, well-lit ecosystems. And the only other thing I, I was thinking of just as we were going through this, I, I would, not that Jenny I listens to the podcasts, uh, <laughs> but if she did, she would probably make a pitch for the fact that there are some other things that can be done. So some of her work looked at the size of different components of the uh, uh, subfossils, uh, different subfossils. So the length of the carapace or the antennal length of some of these things. So there are some more quantitative components because they're big enough that you can measure them. And unlike diatoms, which we talked about where the size of the valve is not really that useful it, it, there can be some changes because they get within individual groups they can get bigger for example related to uh, predation pressures so got to put that pitch in there good good job good job but yeah so a pretty varied um set of interests from a paleolimnological point of view um for this this group of uh small uh small invertebrates all right adam the key question clodocerans great paleo indicator or greatest paleo indicator 
So uh, I am here today to pander to all the Kadosran fans in the audience, and I'm going to say unequivocally that they are the greatest Paleo indicator. <laughs> and if you disagree with me, send me a message. That's right. There you go. So I, uh, I think recently or a couple months ago there was a Twitter, um, a Twitter poll in like the Paleo limnology set of what the greatest one was, and I think. Oh really? That I didn't see that. The Clodosserans did not win. It was an outright tragedy of um, just modern science, really. Yeah. I mean, maybe they just they weren't paying attention on that day to get really strongly behind it. Or it's more of a, a kind of nuclear, smaller group of researchers, which is, is probably the case compared to some of the others. So um, one loss there. But uh, maybe in this in this poll, they will come out on top. Um, but lots of interesting things about them is that, and we talked about a little bit uh, at the beginning is that, you know, from a, a, I don't know, is resurrection ecology, which I think is maybe not, uh, the greatest kind of paleo indicator, but it's one of the coolest things you can do with lake sediments. Uh, is that considered paleolimnology or, or where does it fall in your opinion? Uh, it definitely is like one of the, it's, it's really hard to say because yeah. on, on one level it is. And so to bring everyone up to speed and what we're talking about in resurrection ecology, it's like this really cool application of taking advantage of the resting eggs. So there are multiple studies out there that will basically collect a sediment core, go to some known depth of interest in the sediments isolate just the aphipia and these remain viable for i'm not sure what the longest is i think we're, i think you know individual single egg that i've seen is on the order of somewhere between like 200 and 300 years old yeah i think that's right something around there and um so i'm not, I'm not sure if that one was a freak in terms of its age or um there's a fair number from that uh, depth but definitely on the order of like 100 years ago and so in terms of like comparing uh, pollution um, or responses to pollution over time in some way um, you can and again remembering these are clonal females so if you get the same species theoretically not a whole lot will have changed because there wouldn't have been that many instances of sexual reproduction through time like yes you're talking about 100 years ago and a billion generations but most of them will have been clonal generations um, and you're able to compare the response of a modern individual to a resurrected copy of their great 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 to some insane number of greats grandmother and measure their responses to a variety of stresses yeah it's it's crazy that you just take out these little things you hatch them which hatching ephippia is not hard hatching old ephippia is quite hard <laughs> there's a lot of work that goes into that but generally speaking rearing daphnia anyone can do that to feed their fish uh, well you know it can be done um in certain certain species and again it all comes down to which taxa you're talking about the conditions and that sort of thing but if you can get to that stage which is the hard part uh, and you have now this uh this uh group of individuals that are genetically the same as when the that egg was deposited 50 years ago you can test them against 
modern conditions or you can test them against the conditions from them were they better adapted to metal pollution than modern species are due to uh, the um due to the development of a mine in the catch yeah or 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 all you know the the potential is almost uh what you can imagine because you have this this population of clones that you can then be used for in a lot of cases ecotoxicological types of investigation so i think one of the coolest uses of sediments though though a little bit outside of uh the classical definition of paleolimnology yeah no definitely and it's definitely one of those things where i've um i don't know seeing uh or working in close proximity with uh individuals that were working to culture daphne through time um and the trials and tribulations that uh, they encounter in terms of air conditioners failing in the hottest week of the summer and stuff like that. Um, it's definitely a subset of science that I was always much more interested in reading about than actually uh, um, being involved in myself. But uh, some, some of this stuff is, is very, very cool. Yeah. And in terms of like another kind of like clodosterin tangent that i guess never really ha doesn't really have a whole lot of paleo aspects to it but we alluded that in the intro that um a lot more people may be more familiar with with the clodosterin than they realize um because one of the most famous clodosterins definitely in this region of the world is an invasive species so if you're going to any boat launches Anywhere around here, you're probably likely to see signs of stop the spread of bitho, which is a reference to Bithotrephes longimanus. Um, it's a taxa that is native to northern Europe, I believe, um, and or not, I believe it's native to northern Europe and like Caspian Sea, maybe area or the Caucasus, the Caucasus regions, somewhere in there, um, and. But the point is, uh, it's not from around here um, and was introduced to the Great Lakes through uh, ballast water um, from uh, shipping, uh, international shipping in the 1980s. And now we're seeing, I'm not sure if this is where I'm not up on the literature to the level that I'm able to really point out dates, but I'm pretty sure it arrived in the Great Lakes in the 1980s. And by 1992 ish, it had been observed in the Muskoka region, and then a lot of kind of uh, its spread has been documented documented to all the small lakes in uh, central Ontario, and it's largely tied to um, uh, spread through anglers um, that are just very similar to the um, zebra mussels. Um, it's just hitching rides on boats in a little bit of water that gets caught in the boat when you go from lake to lake. And again, we mentioned uh, the, these, guy, these gals can um, reproduce clonally. So you don't need to introduce, you know, you don't need a whole lot of them to uh, get, uh, have a successful establishment. And so you're seeing a definite spread um, through, through a big chunk of uh, North America. Yeah, and we talked about them being called water fleas, and this one is usually colloquially referred to as a spiny water flea. Uh, and that's the other thing; it can it attaches because it's the long tail spine is pokey. Uh, it'll attach to fishing gear too, because like, they're big, 
they're big for clitorosphero, which we could talk about in a second, but they're not that big. So you could have a, quite a few of them on your fishing tackle or lines or nets or whatever you have or a uh, boat, uh, like bumpers, those kind of things. So there's lots and lots of places that this relatively large clitorosphero, but relatively small invasive species can uh, get lodged in order to get easily moved around between lakes. Yeah. And um, I guess we're not mentioned yet. This is a, a predatorial, a, predat a predator species, and is actually a, um, a voracious predator in some cases. So you have lakes in the Muskoka region of Ontario where um, the native Cladosterum community has actually been decimated by uh, the introduction of bitho, um, which is, you know, when you look at them in the uh, in culture or it's kind of hard to imagine how voraciously predators they are because they're just like, you know, they're just a long spine and they seem to be fairly clumsy swimmers, but I think uh, um, they're just eating machines. Yep. And Biology. Biology is crazy. Yeah. And interestingly, um, there's not a huge amount of paleo work uh, done, on, done on Bitho. Um, there's definitely some... And analyses looking at do they preserve and the tail spines definitely do um but i think what's interesting is and i've never really seen this ever published or really discussed anywhere but it's kind of funny in that because they are so big i think they're the standard clodosterin paleo analysis would actually exclude them it's yep. like the, pi the pipetting step of um um you know taking clodosterins out of your vial and putting them onto individual slides, at that point, the, you're not going to suck up very many of the, uh, of the tail mm -hmm. spines. So you're actually more likely to find the tail spines in like chronomid uh, samples than in clodosterous samples. Makes Rit sense. Yep. Uh, and, and getting towards the end of this here, uh, though we could probably talk for hours and hours about all the different uses, but one of the, the things that um, kind of often comes up is the idea that you know cladocera are sort of a, a general stand-in for zooplankton you know if, from a paleo perspective if you talk about zooplankton someone's referring to the cladocera um, but that's not really the case from a limnological perspective that's something to keep in mind and you know as we get to things like paleo dna we'll be able to deal with this a little bit better but copepods and rotifers which are huge groups more speciose certainly in terms of the copepods i don't know that much about rotifers uh then cladocera are are in many lakes probably dominant uh in terms of numbers maybe not grazing uh because some of the the filter feeding cladocera are very efficient grazers in comparison to rotifers but those groups just don't preserve. So, you know, from a paleo perspective, that's sort of this, that's not a bias per se, but it is the interpretation of it. And, you know, this leads quite nicely into um, a question we got in the main mailbag. Uh, <gasps> yes. Uh, what? Yeah. And so we got a question um, from Ben, uh, who's asking us, you know, at some point, could we talk about um, comparing like the modern record or net hauls versus the sediments. Um, and it's a great topic. Know, it is, you know, like, and the Colossian lend themselves right to it. And so we'll just, uh, you know, maybe talk about it for another minute or so here in a general sense, but it's definitely fodder for its own show. 
but it's just a case of um, there's no way to really avoid apples to oranges comparisons and when you're dealing with the sediments versus the water column. And the Clarossons really illustrate it because, as we mentioned in, in, the, in the quote from David Fry, um, you know, you're going to get a complete record of the, of the Clodocerans and the sediments. That's part of the draw. Um, and as we've mentioned, there are a huge number of uh, Clodocerans that like to hang out on various substrates and in and among the vegetation in the littoral zone. And if you drop a net hall in the center of the lake, you're simply not going to capture those species that would be captured in the record. And then on top of that, you have potential blooms. So what you will get in the... In the um, in a sample from the water column, like if you go back to the Heart Lake example on the absolute peak day when they're filtering the entire volume of the lake uh, three times a day, um, you're going to get a huge amount of Daphnia on that particular day than you would if you went like a month later. And in terms of your relative abundance of various species will, will vary, which in of itself is may or may not be interested to your um, question. But if you're trying to compare, you know, your July 1st, net hole record to the of 2021 to the 2021 um sediment slice that sediment slice instead of having any one day will basically be having an integrated average of the full season yeah that's a that's definitely a topic for its own own show but uh they do do a pretty good job of illustrating some of the challenges in in just even from a habitat perspective but a temporal perspective uh yeah lots to try and think of and 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 in some cases it you know the answer to that whole show might be like it's really hard and may not be possible to do and well i've done it a little bit but it's always going to be the fuzziness because there'll never be a perfect match but anyway we'll 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 delve into this in detail uh put our thoughts together and yeah and thanks for writing in ben really appreciate it All right, so once again, thank you for listening to Core Ideas, the podcast dedicated to all things paleolimnology. Uh, If you'd like to reach out to us with a question or a comment, uh, please send us an email to coreideaspodcast at gmail.com. Or you can contact us through Twitter at Core Ideas Paleo. There's only one A in paleo. Uh, All of our past episodes, along with their corresponding show notes or blog posts, can be found on our website at coreideas.com ajesiorski.ca i could spell it out but just pull it up on our twitter page you'll find it there uh if you're so inclined give us a rating or subscribe on spotify apple Podcasts, google play wherever you're getting these podcasts a five-star rating would be great but to be honest we don't really care all that much we're just doing this for fun because we're mega nerds yeah pretty much and that's it for now uh, but join us again next time as we continue to explore paleoenology in the knowledge economy era, sticking to our ethos of pure knowledge without the economy. <laughs>